All right, take a Bible and go to Mark chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 14 and read down through verse 29 this morning. And what is probably the, the most unusual text that I've preached in a long time and, and trying to um, make sense out of, out of what happens here in, in this text and then ask that kind of all-important question of, so what? Why does this apply, or how does this apply to, to our lives? What do we do with, with a text about uh, John the Baptist being beheaded? How, how, do, we, how do we process that? Um, so an, an interesting, uh, interesting passage this morning. So I've simply titled the message this morning, Opposition, Oppression, and Opportunities. On March 2nd, 2011, Shabazz Body, who's age 42, and the only Christian serving in Pakistan's cabinet, was brutally murdered when gunmen sprayed his body with bullets. Now, Al-Qaeda claimed responsibility, saying the attack was, quote, a fitting lesson for the world of infidelity, the crusaders, the Jews, and their aides. This is the fitting end of the accursed one, which we will serve as an example to others. And now, with the blessing and aid of Allah, the Mujahideen will send all of you one by one to hell. Now, Mr. Body knew the risk he was taking as a follower of King Jesus. And a few months before his martyrdom, he said this. I want to share that I believe in Jesus Christ who has given his own life for us. I know what is the meaning of the cross and I'm ready to die for a cause. I'm living for my community and suffering people and I will die to defend their rights. We come this morning to a passage of a, a martyr in the New Testament. And, and we come and we're told about the, the really disturbing kind of circumstances that surrounded John the Baptist's death. And so as I said, as I, as I was reading this passage this week and going, okay, how do, how do we, uh, not, not just how do, I, how do I preach this and how do I make sense of, of, of the, the oppression that comes on God's people at times, but then how do we, how do we walk away from this and, and how should this passage impact our lives. And so uh, wrestling a, a lot this week with that, and this is, this is what I came down to. Here's our big idea for the morning. The world opposes and sometimes, we might even say there, oftentimes oppresses followers of Christ. But this opposition and even this oppression always leads to gospel opportunities. Always. This morning we come to one of only two passages in the entire Gospel of Mark, all 16 chapters of the Gospel of Mark. There are only two passages that do not directly involve the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the one we're going to read this morning and back in chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, and both of those focus on John the Baptist, the promised forerunner to Jesus, the one uh, who is told that would be sent to prepare the way for Jesus, and also Jesus' cousin. You may remember that from the, the Christmas story, the story of Luke, John's 
parents were Zechariah and Elizabeth, Elizabeth who was a cousin of Mary. And she and Mary were, were pregnant uh, at the same time. John was, was a few months older than Jesus. So this morning we, we come to this passage and and this is a little bit longer. We're going to read from verses 14 through 29. So I would, I would encourage you to stand. Let's honor the reading of the word of the Lord this morning and follow along with me. Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. King Herod heard about it because Jesus' name had become well known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah, and still others said he's a prophet like one of the prophets from long ago. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. An opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. When Herodias' own daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. He promised her with an oath, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? John the Baptist's head, she said. At once she hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. Although the king was deeply distressed because of his oaths and the guests, he did not want to refuse her. The king immediately sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about it, they came and removed his corpse and placed it in a tomb. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we come to a difficult passage this morning, and yet we know that your word speaks powerfully. We know that our lives can be changed even by these passages. And so, pray this morning you'd speak through your word. You would show us the opposition that comes because of the gospel. Pray that we would be men and women committed to proclaiming the truth, no matter the cost. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. So as I said, we have an unusual uh, passage here before us, and and certainly we see opposition to the gospel. Certainly we see oppression to the gospel. And at the end, we'll we'll wrap up and we'll talk about how the opportunities uh, to share the gospel present themselves even in passages like the one before us this morning. Now, the first thing I want us to see is that opposition sometimes comes because of misunderstanding. Verse 14, we're told that King Herod heard about it, and and that's a really obscure 
fragment of a sentence there, right? King Herod heard about it because Jesus' name had become well-known. And the question is, what, what was the it that King Herod heard about? Well, he heard about uh, apparently Jesus' ministry and the healings that, that Jesus was performing. And this, this perplexed Herod because he didn't have any kind of framework to understand how a man could do these things other than one person that he had encountered, and that was John the Baptist. Some said, we see here rumors about who Jesus is, so some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah. Still others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. So, so we see here, we're given a glimpse into uh, how the people understood who Jesus was, or rather we, we might say how the people misunderstood who Jesus was. Again, they, they didn't have any kind of theological framework to wrap their minds around someone who could do the things that Jesus had done. And so the, in, in the, the coffee shops and, and markets, there was, there was discussion about Jesus. And, and some said he's John the Baptist, come back to life. Some said he's Elijah, maybe one of the other prophets of old. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded, has been raised. You, you can imagine Herod's distress, knowing that he himself had, had overseen the execution of John the Baptist and suddenly thinking that he's come back to life when, when John was not a big fan of Herod, and we'll see why in just a moment. By, by the way, this, this passage starts off in, in verse 14, and it says, King Herod. Um, th this, is, this is interesting to me, because th this is most likely a sarcastic jab at Herod by Mark. So, so we've talked about before how, um, well, we believe the Bible is, is the word of God and is inspired and infallible. God, God nevertheless, used the personalities of the individual authors to, to write. And so as you read, Mark, is, he's going to sound a little bit different than Matthew. He's going to sound different than Luke and John, and they're going to sound different than Paul. God, God used the, the gifts and the experiences and the abilities of the individual authors. Apparently, Mark had a bit of a sense of humor because he refers to Herod as king. Now, now you might say, well, what's the big deal? Wasn't he a king? Well, no. This is not... This Herod is not Herod the Great that you may think of uh, from Jesus' birth stories. That was Herod the Great that we see in Luke chapter 1 and 2 in, in the birth stories, Herod the Great. This is Herod Antipas, Herod the Great's son, who ruled one-fourth of the kingdom that his father had. Now the Herods served under Caesar, the, the emperor. And Herod had actually requested this title of king from Caesar Augustus, and he was denied. And apparently his wife Herodias would not let him live down the fact that he was denied this title of king. And so you have Herod Antipas, who is uh, maybe a, a 
somewhat insecure, maybe even very insecure in, in who he was, who felt threatened by John the Baptist and at the same time, we're told, was intrigued by him. But as we'll see, intrigue doesn't always lead to trust. In fact, I would say even today, a lot of people are intrigued by Jesus, but never surrender their lives to him. So sometimes opposition comes because of misunderstanding, because of misunderstanding who Jesus is, the plans that he has for us. And, and I think, as I said, I think today in, in our world, we would see the same thing. Sometimes people oppose Jesus because they misunderstand him. Maybe sometimes they misunderstand him because of the way his followers act. We, we don't act much like Jesus. There's a, there, there's a quote from Gandhi who said once, um, I, I do not mislike Jesus. I like Jesus very much. What I, essentially what he said is that what I can't stand are Jesus' followers who are nothing like Jesus. So while we certainly see in our, in our world today as, as we, we saw in the opening story, opposition to the gospel exists and sometimes that comes about because of misunderstanding. That's why we have to be, as, as followers of Christ, very clear in, in proclaiming the gospel message. And I think today that's especially true. We have to be uh, very, very clear and very careful with how we present um, the truths of the gospel, not watering them down, but, but making sure that we are not misunderstood. And then also, we have to make very clear that our lives line up with what we say we believe. Sometimes opposition comes because of uh, for his wife, Herodias, there was no intrigue. She was, she was only indignant at John. Now, when I say opposition becomes, comes because of sin, I understand what's happening here. Uh, Herodias had been married to Herod's brother, Philip. Now, another point of, of interest here. That, uh, the, that the historian Josephus will tell us is that Herodias was also Herod's niece. So you also got that going on, okay? Now, Herod and Herodias each divorced their respective spouses in order to marry each other, something that is uh, forbid in Leviticus 18.16. Forbid a man from, from sleeping with his brother's wife. We, we know that uh, we, we see patterns in the Old Testament of uh, where a man will, will marry his brother's widow in order to provide for her, to take care of her, but that is not what happened here. They, they divorced their spouses so that they could marry each other in what was apparently a, a rather high-profile um, uh, scandal, high-profile affair, and, and John called him out. Now, you, you can imagine, uh, we've seen... Even in our own day and age, what happens when people call out political rulers? That doesn't always go really well. And most of the time, that doesn't lead to death. But in the case of John, he, he called, it, called out this sin, which caused Herodias to just be furious. And she convinced her husband, Herod, even though uh, he was not willing to kill John, to at least arrest him and imprison them. And we see some foreshadowing here that, that Herodias absolutely hated him. It's in verse 19 says, and 
wanted to kill him. So, so far, let's recap. Herodias is Herod's niece who was married to his other brother. And Herodias and Herod fall in love and get married. So she is uh, his niece and sister-in-law and wife. Are you following that? Okay. Don't worry, it gets worse. Opposition sometimes leads to oppression, right? So, so opposition we've seen comes from, sometimes from misunderstanding, sometimes from sin, but, but it often leads to oppression. And we're going to pick up in verse 21, and we'll see where the rest of this goes. We're told an opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. When Herodias' own daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. He promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Now, really quickly, to, 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 so that we can wrap our minds around what's happening here, Herodias' daughter, remember, uh, Herodias was... Herod's niece and sister-in-law, and then his wife. So her daughter would be um, Herod's niece and now stepdaughter. And Herod throws a party. And we're simply told that Herodias' own daughter came in and danced, and she pleased Herod and his guests. Now, we're not given any details about what exactly kind of dance that she performed, but I would simply say, use your imagination. It wasn't ballet, okay? We're told that the princess, quote, pleased Herod and his guests with her dancing to the point that Herod promises her with an oath to give her up to half of his kingdom. Now, sometimes when individuals are smitten, we don't make the best of decisions, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm not asking for examples, but I'm sure you can think of a few, maybe even in your own life. Herod and his guests are so affected by whatever dancing performance they experience that Herod says, in front of all of his guests, mind you, you know what? I'm going to give you whatever you want. Up to half my kingdom. In fact, I'll, I'll make an oath right now in, in view of God and everybody else. God might not have been watching, but in view of everyone else, right? Whatever. Here, here's, here's up to half my kingdom. She goes back to her mother in verse 24 and says, what should I ask for? John the Baptist's head, she said. So once she, meaning the daughter, hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. Although the king was deeply distressed because of his oaths and the guests, he did not want to refuse her. The king immediately sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about it, they came 
and removed his corpse and placed it in a tomb. Now, we're told that, that Herod didn't want to kill John because he, he was intrigued by him. Even though John was calling out his very public sin, he, he, was, he still liked listening to him. There was something in the message of John that, that, that made Herod pause and perhaps consider what he was saying. But at the risk of embarrassing himself in front of his guests, Herod complies. Has John executed at once? Even brings his head in and gives it to the girl. Now, as I said, there are a lot of layers of what's happening here. But at the most basic level, what we see is a reaction to sin being called out. Uh, Herodias, at, at least, and, and we could say to a point, Herod opposed John because of his message and, and didn't like the way that he was calling out their sin. And their reaction to that led, led them to execute him. Now this seems like this would, would have a, a bad ending, right? I mean, you have, you have someone who was brutally murdered basically to, to stave off Herod's embarrassment so that, so that he wouldn't make a fool of himself. And yet, think about the legacy that John the Baptist has. And, and do, you, do you know that if you dive in and study the life of John the Baptist, we have his ministry, his public ministry lasts for less than a year. In, in reading this week, the, the kind of the, the, the basic um, understanding, the basic um, agreement is that his, his public ministry lasted somewhere around six months. And his entire ministry, if you remember, was calling people to repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And when Jesus shows up, John fades into the background. In fact, John 3.30 tells us this. It, when, when, when John is asked, hey, Jesus is baptizing people and there are crowds going to Jesus, doesn't that bother you? you don't, shouldn't you do something about this? John's response is this. He must increase, but I must decrease. John fades into the background. He, he fulfilled his ministry in preparing the way, preparing people's hearts to receive Jesus. And this man who, who lived a pretty wild life, right? Remember, he, he was covered in uh, animal hairs and ate locusts and wild honey and, and went around, some would probably think, raving like a madman, telling everybody to repent and, and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Who ends up losing his life because he won't shut up telling Herod and, and Herodias that what they're doing isn't right. Do you remember what Jesus said about John? Do you remember what Jesus' testimony about John was. He said, of those born of women, 
No one is greater than John. Those born of women, no one is greater than John. See, here's the thing. Op- opposition and, and oppression are realities. I, 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 I don't want to draw too much of a parallel here, but you know, we've, we, we've talked, because uh, I, I don't want to overstate what's happening in, in our world right now. But, but we've talked before about the, the, the religious freedoms that we've experienced in, in this nation, the, the freedom to worship, the lack of oppression that, that we've experienced that, that as I said, is, is pretty unique in, in the history of Christianity. What, what we've experienced in the last 244 years is, is somewhat unique. And I've, I've also said I, I don't think that that's going to last forever. I mean, we have 2,000 years of, of Christian history and 244 of that, we can say, hey, there's, there's been um, really unprecedented religious freedom, and, and I think it's safe to say that we, we don't think that's going to last forever. We're, we're seeing some ways that, that, that even our, our constitutional right to gather to worship is being chipped at, even this past week. Perhaps you saw the Supreme Court's ruling uh, from, in a case, the Calvary Chapel in Nevada sued the Nevada governor because casinos, restaurants can open at 50% and churches could, could open with a maximum of 50 people. Calvary Chapel sued and eventually made its way to the Supreme Court rather quickly, but, but given the times that we're in, that's, that's not a real surprise. There are uh, decisions having to be made that haven't had to be made before, and the Supreme Court ruled against Calvary Chapel. Okay, that's not, hear me say this, that is in no way the same as somebody being beheaded, but it is, I think, signs that the religious freedoms are being squeezed here. Certainly, as you look at our culture around us, we, we see rising opposition to the gospel, to the things of God. That should not surprise us, okay? As I said, if you, if you read back, if, you, if you're not a student of history, let me encourage you to, to read a little bit on, on church history. You'll find out that is not unusual. Uh, believers being oppressed and persecuted for their faith is not new. In fact, I would dare say that's the norm in the history of Christianity. Perhaps you've seen the images or read the stories coming out of China where a group of Muslims have been rounded up and sent to what, what would be the equivalent of, of what we would understand as concentration camps. And I know it's, it's easy for us to point and say, well, those, we, we, we believe that Islam is not a true religion. We, we believe that they, they worship a false god, and that's, that's not Christianity, to, to which I would say, yes, but. It's a very short step from persecuting Muslims to rounding up Christians and throwing them in concentration camps. And in China, we, we see a very glaring history of that. 
So understand that this kind of oppression, what we're talking about this morning of people speaking out in, in truth and worshiping God and believing the gospel, that, that leads to oppression for millions of believers around the world today. And there's a very real possibility that one day it will lead to the same thing here. So what do we do? How do we respond to that? Well, in John the Baptist, I think we, we see a great model of someone who would not back down from his message. Just because there was opposition, there was pushback, and, and even being thrown in prison, he, he, he wouldn't back down. If you read the book of Acts, we see that several times throughout Acts. Acts 4, Peter and John are arrested for proclaiming the message of the gospel. And they're released, and do you know what they do? They go right back and proclaim the gospel, and the authorities come to them and say, wait a second, we told you not to do that. Like we, I mean, almost scolding them like a parent, like we just had this discussion. We just, you literally got out of prison. This morning we told you not to do this. Why are you doing it? And their response is, we must obey God rather than man. And, and, and I mean, they, they basically tell the, the authorities, listen, if, if what we're doing is wrong and, and, and you're going to arrest us for it, okay. But, but our first allegiance is to Almighty God. It's, it's not to any earthly authority. We've seen, even in our own, our own nation, now, now, United States of America, 2020, we've seen churches defying government mandates to gather or to not gather. Government, government mandate, mandate, governments have mandated um, churches cannot gather in this time. We've seen some churches disobey that. Not in a violent way, but simply saying, listen, we, we believe that, that we have the um, God-given command to meet. And I, th I think that that is up to every single pastor and every single church in very different um, local contexts to make that decision about what's best for their church in, in the middle of a pandemic. I, and I'm, I'm not about to judge anybody who's making decisions that, that I wouldn't make because in, in the end, that's uh, one of the things that we believe as Southern Baptists is that we believe strongly in the autonomy of the local church, meaning uh, pastors and elders and deacons make decisions for their local church. But what we did see are some churches that are defying their government's or state government's orders. And at least one case in California this morning, the government threatening to shut the power off to the church where people would meet this morning. Now, now again, hear me. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to blow this out of proportion. I, I, I'm not trying to create a, any, in any way a persecution complex other than to simply say, what do we do when what we believe about the, the message of the gospel goes against what the government would say we can do. Romans 13 tells us that we are to obey governmental authorities with the caveat that, that by obeying government authorities, we don't disobey God. And so, as I've said before, as I said from the beginning, our default position should be that we want to honor our government authorities in accordance with, uh, with Romans 13. And yet, at the same time, ultimately saying, listen, at the end of the day, we obey God rather than man. 
If that leads ultimately to oppression and persecution, then so be it. And this is what Jesus said, right? So, so we see opposition and oppression provide gospel opportunities. I would say every time, every single time, opposition and oppression provide gospel opportunities. John 16, 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Sign it, stamp it, stand on the promise right there, okay? You will have suffering in this world. Now, that can come in a lot of different ways. And, and right now, we're seeing suffering in a lot of different forms. We're seeing certainly people suffer um, from, from a health standpoint because of the virus. We're seeing a lot of mental health suffering at the moment. People have been cut off from family and friends. You know, one of the one of the stories that I don't think has, has gotten enough attention through all this are um, people in nursing homes who've been cut off from their family now for months with no end in sight. Certainly, we, we can talk in this about economic suffering that, that comes about because of, because of a fallen, broken world where things like viruses exist and and. and in response to that, we've, we, we've closed businesses and whatever, whatever you feel about how that should go, I'm not in any way trying to make a political statement other than simply say that, that there's suffering that comes about because of that. We, we suffer because of sin, both because of sin in our own lives and sin in the lives of, of other people, lives, sin in the lives of those around us. You will have suffering in this world. Yes, sometimes that will even lead to oppression and persecution. But look at the very next part of this. Be courageous. Another word, uh, another way that you might phrase that that we see often in the Bible is don't be afraid. Do not fear. Which, by the way, you might be, be aware of this, but that, that phrase, do not be afraid, occurs in the Bible 365 times. Now, listen, I, I don't believe in coincidences anyway. And when you, when you see something like that in, in the Bible, I think that should cause us to pause and ask, why would God put that in there 365 times? Because it's something we need to be reminded of every single day. Do not fear. Don't be afraid. In this case, be courageous. I have conquered the world. When we talk about your, your gospel opportunity, listen, the, the world around us is in flames, in some places, literally. But for the follower of Christ, I don't, I don't have to be afraid. Because my trust is not in a governor or the current president or the next president or a Supreme Court or a constitution. Those my, my, my hope and my trust is not in that. My hope and my trust is in Jesus Christ who promised we would experience suffering in this world but also commanded us to be courageous because of the reality that he has overcome the world. 
So what do we do as we consider oppression and opposition? Well, be courageous. And part of that, I would say, is being prepared. Now, we, we, don't, we don't live our lives in fear. We, we live our lives, hopefully, with understanding the reality of the world in which we live. That is a fallen world that opposes the things of God and has always done that. And if, if my understanding of the Bible is correct, we'll always do that. And so we know, as, as followers of Christ, we live in enemy territory. And yet we have a king that has already won the war. So let us be courageous. Let us follow him in the face of opposition, in the face of, op of oppression, looking for opportunities to boldly proclaim the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for who you are and for what you've done for us in Christ Jesus and bringing us through these days of, of suffering in our world. And as, as I said, we, we see suffering on so many fronts. And yes, we see oppression on, on a lot of fronts. So I pray that we would not live our lives in fear, not, not live our lives in fear of a virus, not live our lives in, in fear of persecution because we believe the gospel, but would follow Christ's commandment. We would be obedient to that command to be courageous. We would believe the promise that he's overcome the world. I thank you for the example of John the Baptist who continued proclaiming the gospel pro continued pro calling people to repent even when that meant losing his life because of it. Thank you for the examples in Acts of Peter and John and later Paul who boldly proclaimed the gospel regardless of the consequences of that. May we be people who walk not in, not in fear and, and not in a persecution complex who who are looking for ways to be oppressed under every rock, but, but who understand we live in a world that opposes the things of God and that leads to oppressing the things of God. We would live not in fear, but, but understanding that's the reality of the world in which we live. But also believing that the message of the gospel is the power of God to those who are being saved. It has the power to move men, women, and children from death to life and that we would never, never doubt that powerful truth. Father, we thank you for who you are and for what you've done in sending Christ Jesus. May we walk in freedom from the power of sin in our lives. May we walk in and proclaim the power of the gospel to those around us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.